space fans, and welcome to a new episode of the Supercluster podcast. This is Alex Lynn, space reporter, filling in for Robin. Today, we'll be discussing equity and inclusion in the space industry with Michelle Lynn. Michelle is a rising senior at the University of Colorado Boulder, studying aerospace engineering and applied mathematics. She founded the CU chapter of Women of Aeronautics and Astronautics, And in 2019, Michelle was awarded the Women in Aerospace Scholarship and was a Brooke Owens Fellow at SpaceX, where she worked on the Crew Dragon Mechanisms team. Currently, Michelle is working as a Matthew Isaacowitz Fellow with Blue Origin. Michelle, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Alex. It's so great to be here. Yeah, I'm so stoked for this conversation. So before we jump into that, I just want to check in and see how you're doing. In spite of COVID, it seems like you've still very much got a packed schedule. And I'm wondering how your Brooke Owens Summit was. Yeah, it was really fantastic. I was one of three co-organizers out of the alum class of 2019 that helped organize the Brooke Owens Summit this year. And even though we had to go fully remote, it was still a great experience. We got so much amazing feedback from the 2020 fellows. And I really think we were able to semi-emulate the experience that they would have had in D.C. Interesting. So in going remote, how exactly do you think that changed the nature of this summit? Yeah, I think it changed it for better and for worse. I think a lot of the speakers that we were hoping to get suddenly had freer schedules. So we were able to get Ken Melroy, former astronaut and space shuttle commander, David Newman, who is a professor at MIT and mm-hmm. former deputy administrator of NASA, and Poppy Northcutt, who was the first woman in mission control at NASA supporting the Apollo missions. So those are some big hitting names that committed to the, the summit because I think it was virtual and they had the time to do so. But also we were, of course, mis- missing that personal element of getting to know each other, getting to hug, to cry together, to laugh together. And that was something hopefully that we'll get to have at some point in the next summer. Right. We'll see. Fingers crossed. (laughs) We'll see if things look up. So, Michelle, you are a first generation immigrant from Taiwan. How has that part of your identity influenced your experience in the space industry? Yeah, growing up in two places was definitely kind of difficult. I really appreciated my upbringing in Taiwan and the fact that I still have family there and I go back pretty often. But I didn't gain that appreciation until very late in my college career because I was never surrounded by other Asian Americans. Boulder, Colorado Mm -hmm. is a pretty white city. And as an immigrant, I think it's definitely a unique experience to be able to not only understand the struggles that people face when they come into a new country, a new industry, but also I sometimes get questioned if I am a citizen and if I can work here. There's a very unique uh, ITAR problem within aerospace specifically more than other engineering industries that tend to be very exclusive by nature of these restrictions. So It's definitely, I can relate to the immigrant populations who really want to work in this industry. But personally, I've never had that problem because I I am a citizen. I actually remember a story my grandfather told me because he's actually a first-gen immigrant from Taiwan as well. 
he obviously came here a long time ago. But when he came here, he started working for Lockheed Martin. And this is really crazy, Michelle. The CIA came and questioned him because wow. they thought he was they thought he was a spy. <laughs> they wanted to yeah. make sure he even though he came from Taiwan, they wanted to make sure that he wasn't like a Chinese spy selling like engineering secrets. So, yeah, I can definitely imagine those stories happening and I'm I feel very fortunate that I personally haven't faced as much discrimination as an Asian American, but I have as a woman and as a young woman, actually. And I would say that those are two, probably two of the bigger points that people grab onto as opposed to my race. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, Michelle, tell us what first inspired you to get into the space industry. I saw that you mentioned on your Brooke Owens profile that you've wanted to become an astronaut since age six. What exactly inspired that drive? You know, I think it's a funny coincidence looking back on it now. My name in Chinese, Ling Shuru, actually means universe, the last letter of my name. So <laughs> I think it's it's pretty fortuitous that I decided to go into aerospace because now my name kind of makes sense. Yeah, very fitting. Yeah, but actually I have always really loved... Looking up at the stars, I think that's something pretty universal that everyone can relate to and might sound a little cliche. But when I was six, the first book that I ever owned, uh, that someone ever purchased as a gift for me, was this comic book on the astronaut training process. And Mm -hmm. as a young kid, I was obsessed with the idea of going to one of the space centers and training in the nuclear buoyancy lab and training in isolation, learning to work with other people, becoming a leader, like the comic strips showed. And I think that was the first time that I really thought about what I wanted to do in the future. And that seemed like it encompassed all of my interests. Wow. It's so crazy how just different forms of media and like art can really influence us as kids and inspire us. So who were the real life folks you look towards as role models that help you see yourself in this industry and what in particular drew you to them? One of my biggest role models is Lori Garver. She is one of the founders of the Brooke Owens Fellowship and Mm. also, also former WA administrator at NASA. And the first time that I had heard her speak was at a space policy class taught by Phil Larson at CU. And she was speaking on her experiences at NASA and her thoughts on SLS, the rocket that they're building currently. And I just remember as a freshman looking at this powerful, authentic, unapologetic woman who was not afraid to speak her mind and not afraid to step on toes. And I just remember being so emotional and moved by that. Because in that whole first year of college, I had been told that in order to do well as an engineer, you have to compromise. You have to know how to communicate with others in a palatable way. And I have never really realized that I can bring my full personality into the room until I saw Lori there. Mm -hmm. Innovation doesn't necessarily come from being like everybody else. I think, honestly, most of the time it comes from being different. And I think 
it's really important that we see people who are different and allow us to be different in our way as well. Yeah, and it's not even that we have allowance for differences just to exist, but that these differences can help us succeed. And I think that is another point that people tend to forget. Absolutely, that it's a strength, not a weakness. Yeah. So Michelle, you've got a pretty stacked resume. You've already worked for SpaceX under the Brooke Owens Fellowship, and now you're with Blue Origin under the Matthew Isaacowitz Fellowship. What ultimately is your career goal here? My ultimate career goal is to be an astronaut, as you know. I would also love to design the first habitats on Mars, and that's something that I've been involved with through research, which is crazy to think about, that I could potentially have a hand in in designing the first houses or habitats on Mars. Yeah, that's a pretty crazy thought. (laughs) (laughs) It honestly looks like it's becoming more and more of a reality with everything that's happened with DM2. And as we inch closer and closer to putting the first people on Mars into reality. Okay, Michelle. So we've played nice. We're going to get into the real questions here. On your Twitter, You speak a lot about the archaic language that's been used in science-based documents and also sometimes continues to be used, like male and female parts. And as we're aware, the term mant is still used in several contemporary documents that I've seen. What do you believe that this remaining presence of this language indicates to you about the past and present social climate of the space industry? Yeah, it's very disappointing to see that you know, words like manned spaceflight is still used. I think in the past, it was kind of the product of the culture. You know, women weren't allowed to be astronauts because first and foremost, they weren't allowed to be test pilots. Mm -hmm. And that was the only way you could be an astronaut. So there was this huge, several layers deep of barrier to entry for women in the space industry. And sometimes I still come across people, although not very many, especially old men that doubt women's ability to succeed in the space industry because they're women. Mm-hmm. And if anything, the Brookhoven Fellowship in, by itself has shown that there are excellent, excellent women and gender minorities who are ready to change this industry, but some parts are, of it is not ready to change. So I think The word manned in present context is really starting to be eradicated. Um, We're starting to see crude spaceflight or human spaceflight take Mm -hmm. precedence over words like manned. But there is a small, small sector of the engineering world that doesn't understand why we're fighting this hard for this one word when manned in the past has meant human. And I do think it's super important to think about the way we present words and the language. It affects the way we think and it affects our future. And if something as simple as changing one word can make young girls believe that they can go to space or to make current engineers feel less uncomfortable, I think that's the smallest price to pay for, for inclusion. And to be honest, I much prefer the word crude to the word man. It just sounds more, and this might be me being like, I don't know, a little pretentious, a writer, blah, blah, blah. It sounds more professional, in my yeah, opinion, it anyway. Yeah, so much cooler. 
Yes, yes. It yeah. actually like gets you like excited about what's going on as opposed to like manned. It kind of sounds like manhandled, which makes me think <laughs> of like it just it doesn't make me think of great things for all yeah. of us. <laughs> so do you believe that these terms indicate perhaps like a greater status quo in STEM fields in general? I hesitate to say that they do because the conversations I'm seeing around these words around man space flight and male female parts is that there is a giant push by the vocal activists in this industry who care about science communication to change it to something better. And there's great discussion about, well, what about this word? And what are the implications of that word? And is it really a better substitute? And I think these are the conversations surrounding word choice as opposed to defensiveness, um, Mm -hmm. at least from what I've seen. So it makes me very hopeful for the industry that we're starting to talk about these language and rhetoric choices. So something I found really interesting about this Twitter thread that sort of spouted from this criticism that you had, some of the criticism directed towards you actually came from what appeared to be other women in the space industry. I think I even remember one responder advising you to grow thicker skin. What do you think is behind that type of reaction to your thread? I think those reactions is a remnant of the struggles that a lot of women had to face in the engineering field. I honestly think it was probably well-meaning advice. Mm -hmm. I already have pretty thick skin as it is, so I, I didn't take it. I was like, well, maybe instead of saying grow thicker skin, let's change the culture, you know, That's not the root of the problem. Telling people what they need to do in order to survive in the industry is archaic. That's what we had to do when there was no way of changing the industry. But we have seen now time and again that change is happening and that this industry is capable of change. So I think it's time to hold the system accountable as opposed to these individuals that are being attacked by the system. And I think to make it clear, you know, women are not the ones at fault for instigating this system of toxic culture. Most times, I think some women get the idea that in order to be in the club, you have to act like one of the boys. That's Mm. certainly what I thought when I came into college. And this is exactly a symptom of that. It's when you learned how to get a seat at the table, you're going to pass that advice to other women that you have to act like one of them, have to grow thicker skin, have to brush it off in order to be accepted. But what we don't realize is that we can just get up and move to a whole new table together. And Mm -hmm. that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. And you can change the conversation. Yeah. You don't have to keep. I think people forget because this stuff has been enabled for so long. You don't have to just accept it. You could change the conversation and choose to challenge it instead of just ignoring it. And honestly, just ignoring it, it doesn't mean the problem goes away. So we've heard this narrative before that space doesn't care if you're a girl. Space doesn't care about your race, your religion, your creed, or what have you. What is your take on this narrative? And how much do you think it is actually upheld in the space industry currently? Yeah, that really reminds me of, you know, what people say when they say, I don't see color. 
Mm. And with the racial injustices that are occurring across the country, we're seeing very similar storylines to what was happening during the launch of Apollo for the first moon landing. And the country was torn apart by protests for civil rights. And we're seeing the same thing. We're protesting for human rights, for Black lives, and Demo 2 launched essentially in the exact same background. So I really do think that we need to talk about identity and people when it comes to aerospace, because that's why we're doing this. It's human spaceflight. If we didn't care about people, then we would just be sending robots and rovers, and there's no point on in getting to Mars. But because we're human and because we have this need to explore and because we're curious, because we're doing this for each other, there is inherently the element of being human in this industry. Right. And speaking of this industry, I sometimes think it's interesting to reflect on the fact that, you know, this is a field ruled by math, engineering, and physics. So many of us might be led to believe that the space industry is one that's free of any kind of bias. However, we're discovering that a system is only as anti-racist and anti-sexist as those who created it. I think in areas of coding, for example, there are places that are like rife with algorithmic biases due to an overwhelmingly like white and male demographic. I was reading the other day about this crazy algorithmic bias in coding against faces of different races and how the computer literally could not remember any photos of black people's faces, but they could remember all the white people's faces. It was it was just so, so wild to read about. So I'm wondering, what to you are the empirical biases that are present in the space industry and how do we address and fix them? Yeah, that's a great example. We often like to point fingers at AI and machine learning for examples of biases like that. But actually, we, as in literally anyone who's ever designed anything, are all guilty of inputting biases that are inherent within our view of the world. Mm-hmm. I really love this book. It's called Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. And in it, she talks about the way that when we designed for the default user, it is overwhelmingly male. And mm. It actually doesn't make sense in a lot of things like seatbelts and diagnosing heart attacks because the people who are designing tend to design for themselves. And even as a a woman, sometimes when I think about design, it's very easy to just picture the default body and that body is almost never female because that's just not the way we were taught about Mm -hmm. the default body. I think a lot of the biases in space are sometimes less apparent, but it's everywhere from college formula SAE teams designing cars that fit an average user. They're supposed to fit anywhere from a 5th percentile female to a 95th percentile male body. But Mm. when you take the average of that, it tends to be a 50th percentile male is the average seat that they designed for because those teams are full of men 
more likely than women. Wow. So then it turns out, you know, when you get in the seat, the gas pedal is too far for your feet. Hmm. Another example is when Carnegie Mellon abolished its coding requirement for entry and suddenly saw a lot more women coming into the computer science department because women more less so than men are exposed to areas like mechanical engineering and computer science prior to them coming in for a formal education in college. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's anywhere from, you know, playing with Legos. Legos are still really deemed masculine toy because it's associated with engineering and sciences. Right. And so people who play with Lego when they're younger develop better 3D visualization skills, which are key in engineering. So there are all these really little problems within the pipeline that attribute to these systemic differences between something like biology versus something like aerospace engineering. I think the best way to address and fix these problems are to identify these along the pipeline and to understand where we're losing people who are being underrepresented at the industry level. But by then, it's almost always too late to get more of those people into the field that you want. And it's really key to tackle those earlier on with language, with rhetoric, with cultural perception of toys, something as easy as that. So I'm curious if you believe that the space industry is kind of systemically like a gatekeeping industry. And I'm also wondering about the ways that you have experienced this kind of gatekeeping. One of the main ways I've experienced gatekeeping was going up to an information booth at a career fair at this company. And the recruiter wouldn't speak to me until I had told her how long the transit to Mars would take. And uh, she had <laughs> she had said to me uh, very clearly that if you don't even know how long the trip to Mars will take, it just means you don't have very good instincts as an engineer. Oh, my God. And I was just blown away because I had no idea. I was a freshman. I had no idea how long a trip to Mars takes. It's six to nine months for those listening and confronted suddenly by people like this. Now you know. But it was something I just remember being really upset about because... I didn't think that it had anything to do with my ability to succeed. It was just one of those silly things that, okay, if I can Google this in front of you right now, suddenly I am now worthy of talking to you and your company. Right. And it's also, I can imagine, I mean, it wasn't that long ago for me being a freshman, although I'm getting <laughs> older every year and I'm feeling it. It's terrifying. I can especially imagine as being a freshman it literally being your first year, you know, studying this field that you're hoping to make a career out of, hearing something like that mm -hmm. is really discouraging. And yeah. I'm I'm sure there there are a camp of people who do believe that that's kind of negative reinforcement in a weird, like paradoxical way would somehow make someone more motivated to quote unquote, do better or learn more or study harder. But I think, you know, as we continue to evolve socially as people, we're finding that that's actually a really toxic and harmful way 
of speaking to somebody when they're just trying to start out and learn about a new thing. There's also larger ramifications like space toilets being really hard to use for those people who don't have penises because they're essentially cups attached to a rope. So things like this kind of brings us back to the design, the language, who are the end users and who are the ones designing for them. That are all things we have to think about. It's not just exclusive to one group, say, men in the industry to think about things like this, but it's all of our responsibilities to be really conscious of how we're presenting our own biases and our own designs. Yeah, exactly. And also just watching out for how we might be even like complacent in the system without even realizing it. Yeah. Yeah. So Michelle, your Twitter has a pretty solid following and garners a lot of traffic. Some folks with a similarly sized following to yours might choose to not be as bold or as open about their values on social media for fear of lost opportunities, scrutiny, or like even ostracization. What is your response to this point of view? Yeah, well, I really do think Twitter is one of those very interesting platforms that is so accessible to anyone who wants to come in. And it's very easy to get into. And Space Twitter is actually one of the most fun and exciting places to be, in my opinion. And I definitely understand that hesitation in being your full person on Twitter. And I've certainly had very similar feelings when I was starting out tweeting and communicating science to the public. And luckily, I had a mentor, Phil Larson, who I mentioned, who actually would text me if my tweets were getting too out of hand (laughs) and would say, (laughs) hey, tone it down or hey, delete this. (laughs) And it was actually a really nice thing to have at the time. Um, I would honestly seek out a trusted individual who has maybe a bigger Twitter following and say, you know, if you see anything problematic that I post, you maybe ping me or text me about it. That was something that I had. So then I didn't feel like I needed to watch my words because if they were too crazy, Phil would tell me. And if he didn't Uh tell me, then it was fine. (laughs) Yeah, you got like your built-in litmus test. Yeah, exactly. I think something practical, super easy that you can do, you put views not representative of your employers or views my own in your bio. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, you know, that takes the pressure off a little bit. Right. In general, though, I think for me, how I view this issue is that I really believe in the power of rhetoric as kind of as the running thread throughout this podcast and the power of representation. And if in my Twitter journey, I can give someone a different point of view, I can affirm someone or I can empower someone to feel like that they can have the language and the ability to pursue their dreams of being in this industry, then I think it makes all of the trolls worth it, you know? And I am not a person to ever make choices out of fear. I think that is not a way I want to live life because fear is often for the future and you can't predict what the future is going to hold. So I think it's just kind of silly to make decisions based on things that are hypothetical and you might not even know will happen. I certainly have people trying to intimidate me all the time about 
lost opportunities for grad school because they're going to go through my Twitter and find out that I tweeted this thing and therefore rescind my offers. And to that, I'm just, it's so unlikely to happen because these are just things that are kind of being made up in order to repress these really radical, sometimes these really radical thoughts or really empowering language that certain people don't want out there. Mm -hmm. And really, if a company is going to look at my Twitter and say, dang, this girl really has a problem with manned spaceflight being used instead of crude spaceflight. I'm not sure if I want to work for that company anyways. Exactly. I definitely, yeah, I, I do want the places that I end up to be in line with my morals and free speech and really fighting for the most marginalized populations is a huge part of my morals. So mm -hmm. I really do think that by enacting and acting on those things I believe in, I'm going to draw the people that also believe in those things closer to me. Yeah. And I think all of that is more than enough reason to keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. All right, Michelle. Again, I appreciate you so much for joining me here today on the pod. Space fans, you can check out Michelle's Twitter at Meet the Martian. It is pretty poppin'. And thank you for tuning in. Bye.